to the podcast where together, every Monday, we explore hospitality in its very broader sense, from culture and cooking, cocktails and coffee, nutrition and farming, politics and animal welfare, organic and sustainability, family and business, entrepreneurship, and much, much more. Come and learn with me, Mark Cribb, about where our food and our drink comes from and the businesses and more importantly the human beings that thrive on where we decide to spend our time and our money. Sign up to our weekly newsletter at humansofhospitality.co.uk and hit subscribe on your podcast player of choice. Hi, thank you for joining me. Uh, It is Sunday the 18th of October as I record this intro. Half term is a week away and the hospitality industry limps towards it depending on what tier you are in and where you are in the country. And I appreciate people listen to this podcast all over the world, which is lovely, but it's clearly very UK-centric. Probably a little too much South of England-centric, to be fair. Sorry about that. It just happens to be my geographical location, and current travel restrictions make my brain ache. But here we are, where if you're in Northern Ireland, pubs and restaurants are closed completely. In Scotland, they can only open indoors until 6pm with no alcohol sales, and outdoors until 10pm with alcohol sales. In Wales, you can only go out with your own household, and in England, it depends what tier you're in. From pubs and bars closed completely to restaurants open until 10pm if serving a substantial meal. Fundamentally, it is a mess, and so much of it seems so unnecessary. Thousands of redundancies have been announced in the past week across the sector. It's just been heartbreaking. But I am a deluded optimist, and whilst I may be angrier than I've ever been with the government for some of the ridiculousness of their decisions, I still would not want to be the person calling the shots and managing the complexity of this mess. But as a deluded optimist, I'm still excited for the future of hospitality. I know it's full of resilient, creative obsessives. I'm just bloody annoyed that so much of the hardship they are being put through is so unnecessary. But this is not the podcast for us to dive too deeply down this hole, or at least not this week. Instead, I'm keeping myself reasonably sane by continuing to meet the exceptional humans who make this such a diverse and exciting sector, despite the government's lack of respect for it. And this week, we are off to chat with Ollie Hudson, head kitchen and gardener of the Pig Hotels and Restaurant. And regular listeners will know I'm a big fan of The Pig and very much enjoyed interviewing Robin Hudson, founder of The Pig and Hotel Devan, for my 100th episode. In that conversation, Robin mentioned his son Ollie had a monster spreadsheet in his role ensuring so much produce for The Pig could come from the kitchen gardens. And right there and then, a seed was sown. Sorry, that was terrible, wasn't it? Anyway, excluding the puns, it sounded to me like Ollie was one of those typical humans of hospitality that very few people ever really appreciate. The depth of roles all loosely hung under this word hospitality is what excites me every single day. So much goes on behind the scenes and those one million tiny details that ensure guests have a great experience. And it does not matter if it's the person sifting through your coffee beans by hand, drying them out in the sun in far-off lands, or the barista extracting the maximum flavour on the coffee machine in front of you. So needless to say, 
I was excited to arrange to go to the pig nursery in the New Forest and meet Ollie face to face and get to peruse this mother of seed planning spreadsheets. Now I have to admit to going down a couple of rabbit holes in here where I do get to ask Ollie for some tips on my personal brassica growing challenges and there are a few points where it might sound like you've transcended to Gardener's Question Time on a long lost Radio 4 broadcast. Sorry, that is my fault. But equally, you are going to learn just how much work goes into creating a kitchen garden for a hotel. The balance between productive space and a show garden space. How to ensure these spaces always look great but are genuinely used for a seed-to-plate menu. I love Ollie's annual planning meeting with the chefs where they are only allowed to say four things. More, less, the same or not at all. I think many more meetings should be restricted to just those four options. We also touch on Ollie's childhood and the pros and cons of living in an entrepreneurial house and his first-hand witnessing of Hotel Devan being built around family life. Ollie was generous with his time and an utter gentleman to spend a couple of hours with. I hope you enjoy the results and next time you wander through a kitchen garden, appreciate just how much graft is going on behind the scenes. And remember... To keep this weekly podcast on the air takes quite a bit of time and cash and travelling around the country and paying for hosting and editing and the website and all that jazz. So if you can help support it, it would be appreciated. If you have got some spare cash, that can be done by heading to the website humansofhospitality.co.uk and clicking on either the PayPal button for a one-off contribution or the Patreon button to set up some monthly support. And if money is a bit tight, the other way you can show your support is by picking up the device you are probably listening on, scrolling down to the review section, and hitting five stars and subscribe. And if possible, leave just a few words. Just that simple task means that I know you're listening, but more importantly, helps me sell the podcast when I get in touch with potential future guests. And that means there's more chance they will say yes, and more chance that you will get to enjoy any insights they may have. Right, enough of me, let's catch up with Ollie. Cheers. Ollie Hudson, Group Head Kitchen Gardener for the Pig. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Hugely appreciated. Uh, can you just explain, people probably listening can hear some funny noises in the background. Can you just explain where we are in the world, please, Ollie? Hi, Mark. Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me on today. It's a yeah, pleasure. Um, we are in our nursery at Head Office in Lindhurst in the New Forest. So um, we basically do of our propagation for all of the kitchen gardens across the group in this uh, massive great polytunnel we've got here. It's a 100 by 30 foot um, double skinned jobby, fully heated and lighted. And uh, we ship our seedlings out from there. Amazing. So we literally are sat in the, literally in the middle of a polytunnel. I think the forecast is for heavy rain. At the minute it's all right, isn't it? But if, if, if all of a sudden it sounds like, I don't know, we've been joined by a thousand drummers, it's just because it's absolutely lashing it down, isn't it? Yeah, it sometimes it can sound like you're, you know, you're in a turbine of a jet or something in here. Yeah, and it looks a bit like that with a fan sort of in the backdrop. So uh, yeah, thanks for opening the space. You, you've just given me a tour, which is awesome. So I, you know, I've been to the pig numerous times. Stayed once, but 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 been for lunch, and uh, I've interviewed James, and I've interviewed your dad, and and had some fascinating conversations. And it always blows me away when I go to the pig that you know the gardens are incredible. You are the reason that my family took the piss out of me throughout lockdown because I basically 
developed my own spreadsheet and built my own kitchen garden and it was as a result partly of interviewing James over at the pig on the beach uh, and, and your gardens look incredible so I wanted to come and find out you know what actually happens behind the scenes basically so really looking forward to us having a chat um, can you just give a sense of scale then I think I said when we met earlier I saw a picture earlier 33,000 seedlings or something uh, you know how many people are employed in the in the kitchen gardens how much stuff are you producing just give us a sense of what goes on to, to create those amazing in spaces okay so um obviously we've got sort of uh, six hotels in the group each of those hotels has three kitchen gardeners running their kitchen garden that'll be a head kitchen gardener and uh, two two general kitchen gardeners and then we have a team of uh, three and a half at um at the head office nursery who um who as i said then uh, we, we grow the seed uh, produce the seedlings for for the hotels from Amazing. Um, okay, so it's a big, it's a big amount of work, isn't it? For like, you know, you can buy a, a beetroot, you know, for not a huge amount of cash in the local supermarket, and you, you, you've been doing this. How long have you been in this role, and how long have you been, you know, has, has there been, I suppose, this level of complexity behind the scenes? Um, so I started with a pig uh, before we opened the first pig. So uh, what, February the first, twenty eleven, was my first day. Right. Um, and um, I just started off as a general, general kitchen gardener, dog's body, uh, and um, you know, slowly worked myself up to. Um, managing the pig in Brockenhurst garden uh, and then from there after doing that for a few years I went and worked on the restoration of the pig near Buffs uh, kitchen garden uh, again managing that for a, for a couple of years uh, before I um, uh, was given a sort of group role to oversee all of the kitchen gardens and um, I mean there's not a huge amount of managing involved it's more just kind of keeping them keeping them all pointing in the right direction and um, uh, and on brand as it were um, Okay, so we'll, we'll we'll come into a little bit of the detail, but then just just from a planning process, then, and I suppose there was a little trigger when I when I interviewed Robin, your dad, a few weeks ago, and uh, I can't remember what exactly we were chatting about, but he mentioned this sort of this spreadsheet, I suppose, this mother of all spreadsheets that was required, and your name came up, and I thought, yeah, I need to go and and see that spreadsheet. And you've very kindly just yeah. shown it to me. So can you just chat a little bit, I suppose, about that about that journey of planning that goes on for you know when when do you start? What are we now? We're nearly in October, I suppose. Maybe maybe that's a good place to start to explain what you're sort of doing now and and that level of complexity to get into next year and what will fundamentally be on people's plates potentially next spring. Cool. So it's um. It's a real nerdy deep dive. Yeah, like it is. We're and, straight into yeah, the go, deep stuff. Going, in, going yeah, yeah, into yeah. the spreadsheets yeah. and everything. But um, I suppose the, the process we will go through on, a, on an annual basis um, to, to produce the gardens that, that you see. And I'll take this year as, as an example. So um, it's now uh, September 2020, as you said. Um, so as we speak, our head kitchen gardeners will be meeting with their head chefs, uh, their respective head chefs. And um, they'll basically have a list of everything that was grown in the kitchen garden that year. And um, the chefs, the head chef has a choice of things to say. They can say more, less, the same, or not at all. Okay. I mean, <laughs> just four options. I like you've that. dealt with chefs enough. You don't want to give them too many options. You, yeah. You'll be there. You'll be there for a week, and uh, yeah. they don't have that time. So for, give me the four again. More or less. More or less the same, or not at all. <laughs> uh, yeah. I love that. I would it's, love that if I could have meetings with my chefs, and they were the only four things they were allowed to say. It, it Money. Really, it more really or less <laughs> the same, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> it really is that, that simple uh, at that stage. Okay. Um, so it starts off really basic. Um, from there, um, our head kitchen gardeners take the that, that information and form a spreadsheet, which uh, they will have every bed in the garden mapped out, um, and the uh, the horizontal lines on that spreadsheet will be every week in the year. Um, and you will basically you're kind of 
drag and drop, let's take a beetroot for example, and that might be in the ground for 10 weeks or so. Um, uh, so yeah, there's a 10 week block in the middle there, that's yeah, bed A6, that's gonna be, um, that's gonna be beetroot. Um, and, then, um, and then afterwards, oh, it might be another crop of beetroot or it might be um, uh, some winter brassicas maybe going in there. Um, so from that information, they've produced this great big spreadsheet of every bed. Um, we then meet as a group of head kitchen gardeners. Uh, this year, that will probably be on Zoom, I'm sure. Oh, um, no. But um, <laughs> and we create a massive spreadsheet that you, that you just uh, that you just saw, which um, we go through every um, crop and variety, the sowing date, the projected delivery date, the number of sort of uh, trays of seedlings that we need to produce per hotel. And the number of seeds per block, and it's—I mean, it's so. I say it's nerdy. It's—I um, know every one of our trays holds 168 seedlings. You know, or if I use uh, potted herbs, I know that I'll get um, 12 types of one pot or seven types of another pot in in those trays. It's. Um, uh, and how yeah, much of that that sort of because. You know, maybe maybe it's only because I've you know I, I was drinking a coffee this morning before I came out to see you. You know, just running through the questions, looking out at, m at my garden, which looked lovely maybe three months ago, but already, you know, overgrown. Uh, lovely, loads of lovely kale that's just been completely decimated and completely eaten. Um, yeah, just a, just a little bit depressing, really, from what I hoped it would be in my head, and then the reality and the complexity. So, how much of that knowledge has just sort of evolved, I suppose, over time, and that you now just know it because you, you make it sound really simple you're like okay yeah they want a bit more beetroot so we just you know we chuck the we chuck the date and it will be delivered and the date it will be sown but you know weather affects that uh i don't know just just all sorts of things yeah is, is this just something you've just basically got the hang of over a period of time or are you looking on the back of the seeds and going right what date does it say and then kind of calculating it or have you just got a feel for it now i suppose all of the above <laughs> really a little bit um so, I mean, it's, it's funny you mentioned the, the seed packets. Uh, so generally, the, the seed companies play it safe. So if, you, if you've got a packet of beetroot seed and it says, you know, sow between April and June or something like that, you, you can normally, you know, increase that window, um, you know, by, by a month or two in either direction on, on most seed packets. You know, you, you just probably won't get uh, the same sort of percentage of germination. And that's what the seed companies care about, you know, the, um, you know, Joe Blog Seed Company um, don't don't want you to leave a review going only 50% of them germinated because you tried to sow that packet of um, of beetroot in mid-August when um, you know when it was too hot for them to germinate or, um, or, or beetroot germinate anyway it's a bad example but uh, don't worry nobody was <laughs> doubting you Ollie they just presume you're right yeah. <laughs> but I am um, I suppose um, I, I grew up in a new forest. I, I used to help my, my granddad on his allotment, um, you know, as, as, a, as a child a little bit. Um, so I was working with vegetables uh, to some extent uh, from a young age there. You know, my dad had a little herb garden at home you know, for, for culinary herbs. Um, I uh, fast forward a few years, I went to agricultural college, Sparshot College near Winchester. Um, I did a national diploma in countryside management, which is relevant, but not... Um, not exactly what I'm doing now, but a lot of the uh, knowledge is transferable. Um, and really, I, I sort of, um, I sort of fell into the, the job really, and you know, the opportunity came along to, to train and um, you know, increase increase my knowledge a little bit. Uh, a lot of, um, a lot of my, my own time, you know, reading uh, reading books, and you know, there's a couple of um, 
sort of kitchen garden writers and journalists who you know really sort of fascinate me and they're, they're kind of heroes of mine so i you know i get all their books and they come out but um yeah i think, I think you, you get out of uh, you get get uh, whatever you want out of things depending on what you put in don't yeah. you so you know that independent research was was probably what led me to like learn a lot more about manipulating seasons and varieties okay because it's quite an unusual thing to get interested in at a young age as my kids keep reminding me that apparently i'm too young which is very kind of them to to be out pottering about uh in my garden i did wonder i suppose because you know i I kind of imagine your childhood would have been would would that have been hotel de van times i'm trying to think that you know your dad didn't basically strike me as the sort of person who would have had a lot of time to be potting around in the garden growing veggies because he was growing a hotel empire so i wondered where that inspiration came from so it was more from from granddad than than robin was it yeah well i suppose his his were a perennial herb bed so you know times and mints and uh you know not things that you'd have to re-sow every year and um uh, and keep having to dig over the beds um so yeah it was, it was more you know obviously he's a he's a foodie so more so the little things that he could use in the kitchen to add a bit of um oomph to, to his dishes um but uh that, that stage of my childhood i mean so he was at Chewton Glen for uh, my sort of first decade or so you know okay. um, give or take and um I was, it was about a week or so before my ninth birthday that the first Hotel de Van um, opened and um, obviously they had that for 13 years or so I think, uh, yeah 12, 13 years or so, so yeah that sort of uh, took up a, a lot of my adolescence really and my teenage years uh, being there. Yeah. Did you was that, was, that, was that fun? Did you get to sort of witness, I, I kind of always think I suppose kids who've got you know, parents who do a normal nine to five job. I, I remember being on out on a bike ride with my kids a few years ago now, and I was in, I'm going to use the word argument, a debate, let's see, but planning, basically. I was having a debate with the EHO and planning around some extraction system that I needed in my kitchen, and I was driving around the forest trying to find a point, like a high point where I could get a signal on my phone, and it must have been the weekend or I'd taken a, a, an alleged day off, and, uh, you know, I was having these debates down the phone, and I remember my kids later saying to me, you know, Daddy, why are the council so stupid? And I was like, ah... Uh, they're not necessarily stupid. You might have, you know, heard, heard me being a little bit cross. But I thought, what, what am I, you know, fascinating that they, they, what they got to witness, I suppose, about, about work-life balance and the ethics of work and stuff and the fact that even riding around the forest, you know, you're, you're still committed to work. Presumably, same for you. You were, you were exposed to what was a 24-7 kind of roller coaster of seeing a business develop. How did that feel as a, as a kid? Do you remember that being exciting, interesting, a pain, were, you know, cancelled birthdays? Or actually, was it awesome because you got to go and eat great food in great hotels? Well, yeah, um, I suppose, yeah, you get used to um, not seeing your dad on Christmas like um, uh, so much every year. But, uh, you know, he, he would definitely make the effort and, um, you know, go into the hotels in the mornings and then, and then have, the, have the afternoons of the family. So, um, you know, he, I, I think he was probably very conscious of providing that balance for the family. Um, I I loved and I still do. I love being on the building sites, you know, in the hotel build. I love seeing the the projects come together. I'm a uh, I'm probably a project focused worker. I, I I like working to deadlines and um, you know the the kind of challenge Annika of it all. Uh, it's quite a dated reference. Uh, <laughs> don't worry, it works <laughs> for me. Yeah, perfect. I don't quite know what your demographic is. No, no, no I remember this. challenge Annika well. Yeah, um, so people listening, who knows? Who cares? Yeah, as long exactly. as we're having a good time, Ollie. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I still do. Um, you know, as we speak, in fact, tomorrow um, is the big day. We kind of start our project for building the, the beds at our, our new property down in Maidhurst in the, in the South Downs. So, wow. you know, all the timber was delivered yesterday. So I'm going to be down there with a, 
a chop saw and a drill Amazing. tomorrow. Get him, get him a fingernail. That dirty, is exciting. So how, how far out? When does that open? Uh, summer next year, but okay. it's um, uh, yeah, it's difficult to plan too yeah. far ahead yeah. uh, in twenty twenty. Yeah, <laughs> lockdown. I'm going to come back to that because I want to yeah. talk about how far out you sort of plan stuff. So, so we'll touch on that again. But just when you went to agricultural college, then did you have a plan at that point as to what you were going to do? You didn't go there for this job presumably what 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 do you think you would have done if this hadn't come along or, or did you have this in mind working in the family business no i suppose um when i went to agricultural college i was probably more thinking of um ecology and conservation as um as a career path and i spent a little bit of time after college a couple of years two or three years or so i'd say um kind of doing little bits of tree surgery or woodland management, little bits of river management. I was a marine warden for a season at Kimmeridge Bay in Purbeck, uh, which was a fascinating role. Um, so yeah, I, I saw a lot of different things. And um, uh, I uh, sound very lazy, but partly it's, it's quite a difficult world to break into, the, uh, the ecology and conservation world. And I... Um, I became a little bit disillusioned with it as well because I sort of found that, you know, all the people with the real knowledge and the and the degrees and the, and the, and the real skills, um, they were just in the office, um, whereas all the physical sort of the actual work on the ground was being done by volunteers, um, and uh, you know managed by managed by rangers, but you know uh, quite a quite a low ratio. Quite, sorry, quite high ratio of um, yeah volunteers to, um, to to rangers there really. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It's sad, really, isn't it? That, that that's what ends up happening. All yeah. you know, same in in hospitality in general. I think, isn't it? You know, you start on the floor behind the bar, you're a barista, or whatever, and probably love customer service, and then a few years later, you find you're in the basement in a cupboard that, that the hotel calls an office, <laughs> processing spreadsheets. Even you've got a spreadsheet, Polly. Yeah. Come on. You know. I, sh- I, I, I should I, I shouldn't sound too cynical on the, the whole um, <laughs> ecology, ecology and conservation industry because you know I, I do it does have a a big place in my heart, and uh, you know I, d- I do think it's incredibly important. Yeah. Okay. Well, we're going to touch on that in a little bit um, with sort of yeah, modern farming and, and soil in a minute. So um, then, when so so now, you know, when you started, you know, a couple of hotels. Now you've just opened one down in Cornwall, another one opening next year. When you get a new property, do you kind of have a template now? You know, you kind of know what a pig kitchen garden looks like, or is each one very bespoke and very much designed around I don't know the nuances of a new property? I suppose. You work with the space available, really. Um, so I think you could categorise a kitchen garden build project in, in two in two ways. So it's either a complete new build, where you've got you know a blank canvas and cut lunch to do what you want, or um, you've got a restoration job, um, where my, my personal kind of ethos is I like to try and do justice to you know the, the uh, kitchen gardener or the gardeners who were there before. Um, so work with what they've provided. You know, try and not um, you know just dig it all up and start again. Try, try and sort of stick with, with the original plans. As I see it, you're just a, cust- a custodian for a while uh, of that garden. You know, you're um, you are the head gardener at that time. You're the top dog at that time. But you know, your 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 tenure is short in the grand scheme of things. Um, yeah, nature and trees kind of infinite. Well, hopefully, isn't it? I'm sure the planet will die eventually, but yeah. with a bit of luck, we'll be off it by then. But there'll, there'll be certain things I'll be looking for as well. You know, um, you know the, the formula of where to site the greenhouse or the uh, the spacing of of our beds and pathways. Um, you know, we 
we like to uh, in the small spaces we relatively small spaces we have available we like to maximize production so it wouldn't make sense to have a great big two and a half three meter wide path in the center of the garden when that could be you know basically what one and a half meters 1.2 meters um uh just wide enough to get a guest and or a wheelbarrow <laughs> down um uh, and be able to pass each other and um, yeah, don't jeopardise the growing space. Right. And do you always have a, a walled garden or do some of them have, some of them don't? Not all of them have walls. Mm. Um, so, uh, you know, we're very lucky uh, in uh, a number of our properties that um, they, they, they have sort of exist pre-existing walled gardens that we've been able to, okay. um, yeah. so you to, don't build, to build them. in. If they're there, you, you utilise them. But exactly. Because I'm thinking yeah. like, the you know... The, Pig on the Beach is, is walled garden is just beautiful, aesthetically absolutely stunning. And if there was a Disney walled garden that had been manicured and, and designed, it would be that. It's just, just absolutely stunning. But, it, but fundamentally, it was there. You just used the space. Yeah. Um, not all the walls were original, actually. I think we built two of the walls. So okay. we, we completed the square. Um, yeah. how, many, how many walls are there? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but... Um, yeah, the Pig on the Beach Garden is it's a really lovely garden. There's one one thing, one major thing. I'd if, if I had my time again, I, c- I would change about that. Yeah. And that would be I would um, put the greenhouse on the uh, opposite wall so that you'd walk into the garden through the greenhouse. Okay. Um, you know, if if money was no. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Why? I think it'd be a really nice uh, experience yeah. uh, to sort of bring bring you bring you into the garden. I'm thinking about the kind of guest experience. Yeah. Uh, um, whilst we're farmers of sorts and you know a, a huge part of what we do is is production gardening we, we can never uh, lose sight of the fact that we're we're a show garden as well you are and you know we yeah. i don't know at a busy sunday lunch we might have a hundred guests come through the garden after lunch okay. and, and know, so you, you encourage it. people to actually go out and see the produce and explore those and oh absolutely you know it's, it's great you know when people have um just finished their um uh, they're, I don't know, be- buttered baby leek side and they come out to the garden and they, they can literally see the bed um, mm. that those baby leeks were harvested from that morning. Um, and uh, the, the way that I harvest in quite a brutal way and I get the guys to harvest in quite a brutal way so, so it makes it very visual that you can see what is being harvested at any one time. And okay. we always start our harvesting uh, from the, the main pathways where the guests are most likely to be walking down. Really? I mean, some places might want to have it looking pristine and hide, uh, you know, the the gaps in the crop where they've been harvested. But you know, I make a big point of showing off that. Uh, okay. I suppose. When you say harvest in a brutal way, I'm imagining you're out there with a machete, kind of screaming. <laughs> but that, you just mean literally where you harvest from, basically. Where you harvest from. So um, yeah, you sort of um, go back in a sort of in a sort of wave. Um, and if it's uh, if it's a crop you describe as a cut and come again crop, like. Uh, I don't know, a rocket or a chard where, where you literally just snip the top of the plant and it will grow back again. You'll end up with a succession of um, mature plants, freshly cut, you know, sort of a, sort of a brutal line where it's freshly cut. And then slowly, as you sort of go back to the, the beginning of the bed, you'll see sort of um, uh, newer leaves forming, ready um, ready to be harvested when, in okay. theory, if you've timed it right, when, when you finish the other end of the bed. And he, are you pretty quick then at having, and that's sort of the idea of this place, I suppose, is your centralised kind of hub where you send stuff out from. Are you pretty good at 
you know, having having replacement kind of stock to, to go straight in as soon as something's been harvested and it's out, you're in. And because and you're not growing it in the bed from seed, presumably you're getting it to a point here where aesthetically it, all, it already looks good. You've got a bit of a head start. Is that what you try and have ready to go straight in? Basically? Exactly, yeah. Um, we, we don't really want to be shipping things out that's going to have to hang around at the hotel, um, making the place look untidy for too long before... Um, uh, before going in the ground so um yeah in theory um we should have it perfectly timed so they're, they're ready to go in on that day okay. but it's all about planning communication really yeah. and just yeah constantly communicating to each other my really disheveled shit looking garden is pretty much on the way from here to the pig on the beach ollie so i'm just thinking next time you go past with your perfectly manicured <laughs> produce if you could just come down my road and lob a few over the fence yeah, yeah, that's gonna be... fall off the back of the van yeah 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 that would be <laughs> that would be amazing because certainly every time i've been you know, they they look stunning. James, I was lucky. James Golding, your Zek chef, showed me around Pig on the Beach. That's just where I interviewed him, and uh, and yeah, showed me around those gardens, and it and it just blew my mind that it all looked so perfect. Um, has the amount of time? So you you touched on just then your new one opening next summer, and you're in there tomorrow. Has, has the amount of time that you've you've now got to kind of you know develop those gardens has that changed as you've gone on because i kind of imagine normally in hospitality these things are like you know winging it at the last minute in the early days was it kind of like right you've got 10 days and now you've got 10 months has that has that changed and is there a recognition of just how much work goes into producing a kitchen garden i suppose so i reckon um i reckon the work that goes into building one of our gardens um is roughly about nine months for two people okay. to, to create one of our gardens uh, from scratch and obviously, you know, if you you might get an extra person in halfway through there, you know, the run up to the opening. Um, we're, we're quite lucky with our kitchen gardens because they're generally aside from the hotels. They're not like right butting up against the walls. Um, uh, you can kind of kick the builders out quite early. Um, and you're not fighting for uh, competing for the space. Um, whereas with our formal beds, um, which will be butting up against the walls, um, you know, right up to the week of opening, um, you know, you're likely to have decorators scaffolds there or, you know, um, uh, electricians or plumbers needing access to, um, you know, to, to little bits outside the garden. So, so we, you know, uh, going back to that, that 90s reference of the Challenge Annika, that's, that's where you really feel that planting out those, um, uh, those um, formal beds uh, in the last week or so before the opening. Yeah. Um, but again, you know, maybe we we have separate teams for the grounds uh, as as we do for the kitchen gardens. So maybe earlier in the project, the grounds teams who are normally responsible for the formal gardens and uh, the animal uh, animal keeping, uh, animal husbandry, I should say, um, they will help us a bit in the kitchen garden and then. Right, you know, in the the really sort of scary bit just before the opening, that that's when all hands on deck on the on those formal beds. Yeah, it's a buzz though, isn't it? It's exciting. That's yeah. it. it's always chaos. The last, you know, seventy two hours, three weeks, whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That that's the buzz. Um, so Harlem Bay is where you most recently opened. I've not been there yet, but but seeing some amazing feedback. When you think about what that now looks like compared to when it was just sort of an idea, presumably in your head when you first got the property, does as it pretty much come out as you expected do you kind of visualize these things i suppose and and or, or were there some big changes because when you renovate a building all too often you go oh, shit i didn't know there was a wall there or that that was impossible to move or whatever or is, is it you know do you have a bit more freedom in a garden to go yeah i wanted that and that's what i got or does it evolve yeah i think so you know i suppose in the grand scheme of things that you know our 
our costs are not that high compared to you know some of the costs in the in the rest of the build like i mean the difference in the cost of building a kitchen garden or a kitchen would be yeah. significant <laughs> um so uh it, it does allow us a bit more freedom to play with things and you don't get sort of um someone looking over your shoulder <laughs> your expenses you know to, to quite the same extent um so I can normally I can normally go into a place and visualize what I want, and, and it will end up looking something like my original plans. Which, I mean, they will either be done like on a bit of muddy, screwed up paper in Sharpie, or uh, if I'm really want to push a boat out, I'll do them on Microsoft Paint and send them to the uh, architects, which normally gets uh, a bit of a laugh <laughs> at my expense. Um, Elements of the gardens tend to be slotted in at the last minute, so we, we sort of finish the jigsaw with a few bits um, that uh, we we know we want them in there. But um, you know, as we get a feel for the space when we when we actually start working in it, we we then make those decisions a bit later, and you know, in the in the process. Um, examples of that at Harlem Bay would be the mushroom house that we we, we stuck in there uh, and probably some of the perennial vegetable beds um, we, we found a nice place for them uh, kind of last minute okay yeah. I'm just imagining a, a mushroom house in the 90s would have been a very different experience probably yeah. to the sort of mushroom house now but let's not go there <laughs> um, soil right hugely important isn't it nothing works without soil without soil fundamentally the entire planet's screwed um, do you, do you you know do you end up shipping in loads of manure and bringing in stuff fresh do you just go in and dig it up i'm kind of thinking that it, it must be fundamental to the ultimate success how do you get that right um i suppose every site is different because you know you're you're, you're working with a different environment in, in every area i mean the the ground in um harlan in cornwall is very different from the ground in kent uh, near canterbury um you know where you where in Kent you have great lumps of flint and chalk and in Cornwall you have big lumps of uh, clay and slate um, so yeah to a certain extent it depends on on the actual um, on the actual property um, we we compost all of our garden waste however because we put chicken manure in our compost and this is um, funny you mentioned the EHO earlier um, we uh, we basically got a bit of a, a bit of a talking to by the EHO a few years ago when we wanted to use it for growing vegetables they said you know you're not allowed to do that if, if you're putting chicken manure on the um, on the compost heap as well um, so yeah we don't use that anymore what, what we do is we uh, we buy um, mixed compost so it's normally mixed farmyard manure we buy in uh, occasionally during the build uh, we will put some uh, mushroom compost through that as well because it works as a better soil conditioner um, it's basically got very kind of low nutrient value and it, um, it's just sort of loads of organic matter to, to sort of fluff your soil up a, lo uh, a little bit more and then um, the farmyard manure will add the add the nutrients that uh, you know that the vegetables need to need yeah. to grow really okay are they right should you not use chicken manure or is that actually an awesome feed and uh, and it's nonsense probably no comment <laughs> on that one I'd say like, <laughs> I don't want to get in yeah, trouble well done. EHO well done yeah <laughs> there are buddies the good old good, good old e e EHO and the planners um, I can get really geeky and go into a lot of detail and stuff and then there's a there's a um, my son was laughing at me this morning um, 
because there's an actual hour and a half documentary on Netflix at the moment purely about soil. And yeah. I was like, there you go. People go, well, with my podcast, I can be an hour on so something. We've just Woody Harrelson one, I think. Yeah, isn't it? it's um, brilliant. Have you seen yeah. it? No, it's, it's on my watch list. Uh, I, uh, my, um, my partner and the kids are going away for the weekend. So There's a treat for you. you. Yeah, I mean, that is how nerdy yeah. I am. Uh, yeah. nice. sit down and watch a documentary about yeah. soil. Yeah, icy cold beer. And it's like, I'm with you. Yeah, I think, Next I think time. my mates will be trying to drag me down <laughs> the pub, but I'm going to yeah, watch, watch <laughs> a bit of Woody. It is, yeah. <laughs> and, it, you know, like the, the, the potential of soil to, you know, to capture all the carbon in the environment, I could, I could bang on about that, um, but I won't. So who leads this dance then? Because you're very much working in partnership with the chefs. In general, is it that Ollie reads something, gets excited about something and goes, oh my God, I want to grow this. That's going to be awesome. Uh, and then you do. Or is it very much chefs kind of read a recipe or got inspired or got an idea and goes, oh my God, Ollie, this is going to be epic. Can you grow it? And then you go, no, mangoes don't grow well in Dorset. I don't know. But who leads it? I think there's a little bit of both, but um, generally our chefs uh, are probably a little bit too busy to be flicking through vegetable magazines and you know find the find the next big thing. So, I think in terms of uh, selection of varieties, they might give us an idea of what they want, and then we will choose a specific variety for for, for specific purposes. Um, I mean, a, an example there might be they they might say, you know what, we want um, we only grow flat leaf parsley, but actually we'd like some curly parsley this year. Or um, we'd like a Savoy cabbage. What, what can you what can you do What can you do for that? And then yeah, with, with that small amount of information, we'll then work out what's going to grow best at that time of year in that little window we've got, you know, left on the the jigsaw of the sowing plan, as I, as, as I was talking about earlier. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we, we'll, we'll take it from that point. Uh, d- does does what grow? In, in different, you mentioned like the different soil, for example, between Bath and, and Pig on the Beach. Is it also down? To, I don't know. I suppose is, is there a lot of difference between what you can grow in one pig to the other, or actually, you know, is it pretty easy to put most stuff in at all of the venues? Um, yeah, there's quite a lot of variants. Um, so the pig at Harlem Bay, we say, um, you know, they're very exposed there. You've got um, a lot of sort of very salty, strong winds coming coming across the headland. Um, so you know, you might as well not bother growing sort of summer beans, um, you know, French French or runner beans. Um, wh- whereas, uh, you know, broad beans are kind of okay because they're a little bit hardier. Um, and, you know, maybe some dwarf French beans that only get to about a foot tall, you know, they're, they're not too bad. Um, but then you'll get other, other things there, like the, the brassicas will be really, they grow amazingly in that sort of uh, salty environment. Um, whereas other hotels, um, you know, you, you might struggle, struggle even within, within the same garden, you might struggle to grow um, carrots. Um, you know, the pig at Bridge Place, we, we haven't worked out why, but, um, you know, half the garden produces lovely carrots, the other half, they don't germinate. Really? And, uh, it's bonkers, yeah, we haven't isn't quite it? worked that out yet. Yeah. Um, you know, it's playing around with varieties over the years, you know, we'll, we'll hopefully nail uh, exactly how to do it. Um, yeah yeah the problem solving element is the you know is the is the fun part of the game really yeah and then i suppose then because it it must be difficult you know chefs are sort of reliant on you they're planning their their menus you know they're getting excited about coming into certain seasons you're renowned for that you know sort of seed to plate concept i suppose but if you do get decimated by weather or something doesn't germinate fundamentally you haven't got the produce i guess you've got a supply chain have you that that will in essence step in if necessary have you ever lost i suppose a big sort of key crop because of some sort of disaster and and then is it just a case of going to the shop 
Yeah, we've 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 had things wiped out before. You know, we we might have a you know soil borne pest that's um, you know knackered a load of a load of um, I don't know. I'll pick an example, something like a, a cabbage uh, a cabbage white butterfly on the brassicas we were discussing earlier. Um, you know, if you if you if you don't manage that properly, um, you know, they'll decimate your beds in you know in minutes, pretty much. It feels like in minutes. Um, I suppose it's just about managing that. It's just about knowing what to do. But a big thing that we, you know, we, we never lie about the fact we're not self-sufficient. We, um, you know, we, we need to supplement what we can grow um, uh, from from local suppliers. So even even if we can only get ten, twenty percent from our kitchen garden of of, of a certain crop, um, you know, the, the rest of something very similar, if not exactly the same, will be grown by a local farmer and you know and uh, served in the restaurant. Some crops we can be a bit more self-sufficient with. Um, uh, during the summer, um, you know, if we've got a polytunnel uh, that is 30 by 14 feet, it was at 5 by 10 metres, um, you probably fit just under 200 tomato plants in there. Between the end of June and the beginning of September, you know, you probably get about 5 kilos a day uh, oh. from there fairly consistently. Um, so you know that goes a long way to towards sort of um, you know all those tomato salads you're, yeah. you're serving or um, oh. you know garnishing a flatbread. Yeah, um, nothing better than fresh tomatoes and a bit of basil that you've picked from your garden. Apparently, because my tomatoes are all green, Ollie. <laughs> have I missed it now? Basically, I think I got planted them a bit late, so I've got a garden. I must have I don't know a dozen tomato plants, all got loads of green tomatoes on them, not gone red. Will they go red, or am I too late? Bearing in mind it's nearly October. I think at this point, yeah, uh, you're probably going to be eating a lot of green tomato chutney. Right. Uh, and is winter. that just, it, would it literally be a time thing? Is it? Would it be that they got planted too late? Is that the most likely? Or? Yeah, I mean, it's, again, it depends on the variety and how the plants have been managed. The tomatoes. Um, yeah, so <laughs> the variety of tomato. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so you get sort of um, tomatoes as an example. You get two types. You get the bush varieties, uh, which... You know, as the name suggests, kind of grow grows a bush with with lots of stems, or you get the cordon varieties, which grows more like a vine, yeah. and um, that requires a little bit more management. But um, I, I like growing those ones. You can fit, you know, more of them into a small space. The the actual management of it's quite fun. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's, it's nice uh, nice little pruning I exercise. Um, I've got some of both, and I've got some inside and some outside. They're all still green. Yeah. <laughs> um, it could be, it could be location. It don't, could be they were sewing a bit late. It's starting to feel um, like Gardener's World, where somebody <laughs> just gets in touch and says, "Ollie, I've got, I've got this problem." Ping, ping me an email next year <laughs> if you, if you had any, uh, any little bits. Yeah. Of well, you just ping me an email when I should be planting my smiles. Well, I don't need to worry anymore because you're just going to drop them off on the way past. Um, so, is is there anything uh, particular that you grow, like a favourite thing? Uh, I suppose that you found work. Where you go, man, I love those. Yeah, it's sort of it's changes. Um, at different times of the year and and at different times in in my life, I suppose. Um, you know, I've always been fascinated by um, by chilies and peppers, and there's some really interesting varieties of them. I work closely with a company called Sea Spring Seeds, who I um, I believe you you've featured been, in one of been your on the podcast. Earlier yeah, podcasts. fascinating. Yeah, enjoy Michael. And yeah. I mean, they they literally yeah, what, what they don't know about you know chili or well, solanaceae production you know tomato just as good with tomatoes and uh, the, the solanaceae family is is, is that not family heard that of, word yes. solanaceae solanaceae it's um yeah tomatoes aubergines chilies and peppers deadly nightshade we don't grow much of that but right. um, yeah um 
But yeah, so yeah, um, uh, Solanaceae has always fascinated me. Yeah, chilies and yeah. sweet peppers, and, and also the growing of tomatoes, as I said. Um, this time of year, uh, or at least in a month or two's time, um, I love having planted out the garlic and just seeing them come up and the, f- the first little shoots coming out like neat little rows of soldiers. Like you know, they look they look fantastic on a you know slightly frosted ground in early December. It's um, yeah. yeah, it's really nice. Uh, I've got a big passion for um, different squashes, winter squashes, um, and uh, I, mean, I mentioned earlier my uh, my love of certain uh, gardening journalists. There's a, a absolute hero of mine called James Wong, and um, yeah, he he's written written some fascinating stuff about um, how you can increase the flavour and the texture of the of the squashes by just curing them for different times and understanding the uh, the species of the of the squash that you're growing whereas most vegetables you grow just one species you know there's three winter squash species you might be likely to grow um and yeah there's there's so much information on there he also talks about why you shouldn't grow butternut squash because they're the they're the crappiest squash basically fascinating isn't it yeah okay that's what the supermarkets do i suppose well Um, there's a reason they do it it's because they've um they're very easy to process very easy to prep i'm plagiarizing james wong here yeah yeah. um, don't worry but um uh the the sort of um, the cavity where the seeds grow in the middle of the squash is quite small on a butternut. Right. Uh, so you get a lot more kind of flesh to seed ratio there. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you can get great big chunks. They uh, they're quick to process into ready meals, uh, and you know they they weigh a lot, uh, so you can tell them sell them for a bit more. Yeah. Okay. Grow, well, that, don't that's grow butternuts. Yeah, that's yeah. a nice little segue, I suppose, into the wonderful world of, of farming. But let, so let's start with um, your thoughts around, you know, organic or n- and non-organic. I suppose. What's what's your thoughts around that? Um, we we are, we manage our gardens organically. We're not organically certified. So, um, and actually, what I normally say is we're as organic as possible. Um, you know. Again, we're in small spaces, and we have to remember that we're, you know, a show garden as well as a productive space. Like every every minute of every day, we have to keep that in our minds. Um, so, if we ever had a real emergency, we would probably, you know, have to use something nastier on it. But in nine years, we haven't had to do that. So, you That's know, good. we've got that ace up our sleeves. But you know, we we will fight tooth and nail to do everything else possible before we get to that stage. Okay. Um, yeah, organic is definitely, you know, is, is, um, it's definitely the way to go. And uh, as I said, I've got a love of ecology. Um, I, um, I, I want to create ecosystems. And, everything. and I, I try and, whenever I design a garden, I leave um, habitat for, you know, for beneficial insects. Or, you know, if, if I know that, you know, historically there's been a slow worm community or a hedgehog community there, I'll, I'll make sure that there's habitat for them left so they can continue to, to be in there. And, you know, they, again, I'm sounding lazy, but, uh, you know, they do the hard work for me. They, they'll um, predate, the, um, predate on the insects. You know, slow worms and hedgehogs love eating slugs. And I used to go around every morning with a with an ice cream tub, knowing where all the slugs hide, going pick them off all the you know all the lower leaves of the strawberries and everything, and every day chucking them to the chickens. Um, the chickens got bored of eating slugs very quickly. <laughs> right. <laughs> they, yeah, um, it's what to do with them. Then I keep finding slugs in my garden, and I, I won't say that I lob them over the wall into my neighbour um, because that would be terrible. But yeah, what do you do with them? Or well, give them to a chef, I suppose. <laughs> no, I uh, I've got a sort of. Um, 
really nasty sort of old pair of secateurs that uh, have have one sole purpose. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but generally it seems to be yeah. If you get if you get the whole ecosystem right, like you were saying, you know, you, you need yeah hedgehogs eat the snails or whatever, and yeah birds and ladybirds arrive and eat the aphids and all that kind of stuff. So you you need this kind of complete. But you know my my garden has just been completely and utterly decimated by what i think is the white butterflies i mean i, I just see dozens of them out there they've never seen them in my garden before i planted some kale and various other bits some uh, romanesco i love romanesco yeah. cauliflowers planted loads of those i was super excited and they've all just been utterly utterly decimated so what what do you yeah what can you do about that as i've gone back to my gardener's world you know ask ollie's column this will be a regular feature that we'll be doing on a <laughs> weekly basis but yeah just just as an example what do you do about stuff like that because if they rock up they can completely decimate your crop in no time can't they um, so there's two main pests of, of your brassicas. Like there's the birds and the butterflies. Right. Um, so I'll, I'll just quickly do with the birds and then I'll go into the butterflies. So when you plant them out, net them. Stick a net over the top of them and, you know, that will go some way to deterring the birds. Um, and also some way to, to deterring the butterflies as well, depending on the size of the, size of the mesh of your net. Obviously, the finer the mesh, the less likely a butterfly will be able to squeeze through it. Um, but um, what, what we really use in the caterpillars is we've got an organic insecticide that we spray, uh, we spray on them, uh, onto the brassicas. We treat them with this, you know, multiple times throughout the summer. And um, uh, it's basically a bacteria that you're spraying onto the, um, onto the, uh, the brassicas, which um, will, I believe, make the caterpillars unable to reproduce. Okay, um, and uh, that, that's how you that's how you break the life cycle right. with, with any pest. You're, you're just breaking the life cycle. The, the insects will have, you know, um, egg stage, larval stage, um, and a, a sort of um, a final stage, an imago, I think it's called. Um, and you, you have to kind of break that life cycle as as uh, as they're going in order to stop those pests uh, being in your garden. Because otherwise, you'll kill off all the adults that have already laid eggs. You'll think, oh, great. Nailed them. Like, don't need to do anything else all summer. And uh, you know, a week later, all those eggs hatch, and you've got fifty thousand caterpillars all over your um, yeah. all over your brassica beds. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. <laughs> I went out once, and I found this plant, and it was actually on a table on the garden. I thought, my God, that plant's moving. And I went over there; it must have had thirty or forty caterpillars. It was just gone in, in one day. It was just completely <laughs> eaten. And, and I, uh, you know, I, I love. I love nature as well. So, you know, I found a particularly cool caterpillar that I couldn't identify. It's probably a moth caterpillar um, on one of my Chilean guava plants the other day. Um, you know, I'll show you, show you a picture later. But, it, I mean, it looked like a, it had like a cool Mohican um, to, to coin another 90s reference. He sort of, um, he had the look of uh, Rufio from Hook with like the red spiky hair. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, hats off to them. What, what, what they managed to pull, and and how the, you know, how all these butterflies that I've never seen in my garden before, like, how do they know? They just rock up from nowhere in their dozens, and you just think that's amazing, isn't it? That that how how, yeah. how nature works. Uh, I There'll find always it, be someone in the next field or next house, you know, growing a few yeah. cabbages, and uh, yeah. yeah, I suppose that's what it is. And if they've got two choices, you know, go and find food or die. Yeah, you know, you're pretty motivated. You'd, you'd probably go and look for the food, wouldn't Pro- you? Yeah, probably not in my garden. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's all gone. Um, do you grow some of the stuff then? So, so predominantly kitchen gardens. It's about chefs. It's about cooking. Back, back, back. Leaving the bug world. Um, do you grow some stuff just because it it's, looks aesthetic in the garden, and you just go, look, it just looks bloody awesome? Or does everything fundamentally have to be edible? As long as it's edible or medicinal, yeah, I think you can get away with growing some things which. Um, 
you know, you probably wouldn't want to eat a lot of, um, but they're a real wow factor. And I think those sort of wow factor vegetables um, alongside any sort of experimental vegetables that you don't know if they, you know, going to produce well or, or even taste any good or anything, you know, newer varieties, you know, we can, we can allow up to about 10, 20% um, of our gardens to go to things like that because, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting for the guests, you know, the journalists, everyone really. So, you know, it starts conversation. Yeah. Yeah, and no, I think it's um well it's, yeah so, so certainly I say it's that it's that picture perfect almost postcard kind of visuals that I remember from the pig yeah. on the beach for example. But you, it, think you know the chili peppers. We're we're um we're not a restaurant that sells like loads of spicy food. You know we're going back to the self sufficiency thing. We're, we're probably self sufficient with chilies, and the chefs you know they're wizards with what they do with them. We uh, they will um, preserve they will smoke them. They'll pickle them. Um, they'll dry them. Uh, you know, to do everything with them to, to preserve them for the winter months. You know, we've even um, we've even made great long strings of alternating, you know, different coloured chilies to uh, to hang on our Christmas tree and the, the pigs. Um, you know, before just you know just to mix things up a bit and they uh, pigify uh, pigify the sort of norm, I suppose. Yeah, it's handy isn't it, if you've got chefs in your arsenal of stuff. So it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it must be. I don't know, if you were just working on a farm and all the stuff sort of disappears off into the world and you don't get to see it, but I think it's great if you actually get to see just how much they can do with yeah. stuff. You know, nothing needs to go to waste, really, is it? Also, I mean, the preserving has become a very big thing over the last few years. You know, we've we've definitely... I think, I think really, it's the ebbs and flows of, of uh, you know, staff and their interests. We just happen to have a load of head chefs at the moment who are really interesting, uh, interested in preserving techniques and, you know... Um, uh, using different techniques from around the world so you know you might get one chef who wants to make different kimchi yeah. um whereas um you know uh, another another chef you know one of our head chefs is, is a polish guy who's worked for us since since uh yeah day one and i uh, he can pickle anything like <laughs> he's amazing like yeah uh, no, i've, had, really I've had some polish chefs and, and i don't know what they do to their soup but i've just been like how how is that soup so good and my, it just um, comes deep deep rooted in their culture my, my partner joe is polish and yeah she makes some pretty amazing some amazing Incredible, soups. Isn't it? yeah i'm like i've never had a beetroot that tastes like that but they yeah. put it through some sort of soup and you go oh my I, god i think an important thing of that preservation as well especially of what we do with um you know, um, organic and locally sourced. You know, it, pr it it allows you to serve homegrown produce throughout the months of the year, where where the garden is not as productive. You know, mm. over the winter yeah. months, we we you know we do harvest every day, but obviously the harvesting levels drop during the winter. Yeah. Um, and yeah, being able to look a guest in the eye and say like, this is homegrown produce, yeah. even though you know you're under you know six inches of snow outside. Yeah. You know, um, you know, it's, it's just well, you know. I'm going to live on green tomato chutney for the rest of the year by the <laughs> exactly. sounds of it ollie so I'll, I'll, I'll be getting the hang of that and and, and there, there must be some stuff there's no possible way you can use so in bath you've got an orchard is that right and presumably you could therefore be self-sufficient in apples does that end up go, being going off to make cider or yeah so we've got we've got some some orchard space in most of our properties mm -hmm. actually um but bath's probably the most interesting one because it was um it, it was quite a redundant uh, orchard. It had been sort of left a little bit by, um, you know, uh, our predecessors there. So it took us about three, say three to five years to really get it back into back into shape. Uh, so it was, again, fun little nerdy project. If you're into those sort of things, probably pretty tedious if, if you're not. Um, we've, we've used apples for a number of things. Yeah, be it cider making, be it, um, you know, making just a, 
a real load of um, uh, of apple sauce, you know, being a pig, you know, people, yeah, yeah, true. people order quite well a, together, few, uh, a few pork chops over the year. Yeah. Um, uh, apple juice we've made in the past. So, yeah, really, again, it depends what, what the chef uh, is inspired by that year. Or I suppose sometimes if the bar get their hands on it first, because yeah. uh, we're also a supplier to the bar for, you know, for infusions and cocktails. Yeah. Do you run any courses in gardening? Do you teach this great level of knowledge to the public asking for a friend? Oh, uh, you know, we, we, we don't teach. I don't know. I don't know if I'm the right the right level to, to teach people. To be honest, uh, you know, largely self-taught. Um, you know, uh, with with a few sort of um, a few sort of uh, uh, formal qualifications behind me, but but I, d- I don't think at a teaching level. <laughs> okay, because does the pig run cookery courses and stuff like that as well? Though, or Limewood does. Limewood um, does. Right. I don't yeah. think we've done any at the pig, but you know, it's not out of the question never for say the never. for the future. I think um, hospitality in general will have to find ways to diversify uh, at the moment. Looks so, like um, it, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Pivoting. So yeah, whatever. Um, Whatever's going to sort of keep uh, yeah. keep people coming in through the doors or keep generating income, I suppose. Yeah. Talking of which, just very briefly, so in that lockdown period, so you know we're uh, I was going to say out the other side of it, but hurtling towards another one. If the, you if you believe all the rumor mills, uh, yeah, podcast, COVID yeah, yeah, yeah gonna, I, haven't, I haven't touched on it much recently, yeah. which is good, and we're, we're only going to touch on it very very briefly. But you know, produce keeps growing, doesn't it? So what did you do? Did your team actually the gardening, the kitchen gardening team, did they stay employed through? lockdown and what did what on earth did you do with all of that produce um so the vast majority of our staff were furloughed obviously um during the uh, d- during the lockdown period we kept one kitchen gardener and generally the head kitchen gardener per property just to keep the gardens kind of ticking over over lockdown but um no in in general they were uh they they were allowed to just you know run a, a sort of quite skeleton staff so sort of sleepy state so you know we we cleared we cleared a lot of stuff out. We used what we could. We we gave we gave a lot of stuff to um, you know uh, people providing for elderly or pe- uh, you know people who were shielding at the time. Um, you know so so nothing was wasted throughout that period. Um, but then you know we we'd either put in crops that were kind of quite low maintenance and you know would be ready for. I mean at the time. It was indefinite, wasn't it? You know, at, at such a time when we could uh, reopen and have, have guests through the door again. Um, in in other beds, we might have just dug a load of manure into the soil and uh, covered it over with a bit of uh, weed control fabric, uh, just just so it's basically a zero maintenance bed for for that period. And once you take that fabric off in uh, you know X amount of months or weeks time, um, you know it's good to go, and you can just plant straight into it. I'm just imagining then what happened on the on the day that you got told right we're reopening on the fourth of July, did all hell break loose because you were like shit you know we've got to make all these gardens look epic in three weeks we didn't get we haven't had a lot of notice in any of this as to what's <laughs> going on I suppose have we? Um, so I think we uh, we didn't open immediately when uh, well when basically pubs were allowed to to go back and, and pubs and restaurants. Um, so it gave me a few weeks to kind of plan what we were going to do. So um, you referred earlier to a tweet I did uh, about um, 33,000 seedlings produced. Um, and that was basically our, uh, our lockdown sowings. You know, that was the day that, you know, we came back. We had a team of about five of us, you know, here, we're, here where we are, where we're sitting at the moment. And yeah, we, we nailed 
yeah a lot of a lot of trays of um of <laughs> seedlings that that week uh, week of 22nd of june um yeah 2020 will stay in my memory for quite a long time i think going down in history yeah. just just an e- epic amount of work um so just touch on the future a little bit i suppose you must want to uh you know continually evolve and continually develop i know you've just done a vineyard is that right what was the motivation for for a vineyard that feels like a really silly question because presumably it was wine but uh, what what triggered that um i mean being in the in the south downs and you know right in the middle of where you know everyone's everyone's producing um uh, wines in the uk at the moment and uh, you know i don't i don't need to tell you too much about you know the champagne houses buying up land and you know the vein of you know chalk and flint that runs through the south downs is you know geologically speaking the same one that runs through the champagne region so you've got a similar sort of terroir um we've we've planted the vineyard it's i mean it's largely uh, i think a labor of love from my old man like uh you know obviously he's uh he's quite a Thirsty. quite a fan of uh, <laughs> wines and has, has been known for it o- over the years you know he's um uh you know have, having run uh host of the band with Gerard, band, who, yeah, yeah. who was you know the the don wasn't he he was a legend yeah in wine the world's and, you know, finest sommelier god god rest his soul obviously mm. all that um but uh you know for, for us it's 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 a steep learning curve you know we're, we're not uh viticulturalists by trade you know the, again the, the skills are transferable but um it's um yes it is a new one on on myself and uh my colleague alex coates who's, who's going to be the head kitchen gardener down at maydust um you know we're we're basically learning from scratch really how to, how to run a vineyard yeah that's and, cool um, isn't it i yeah, love we've that got, we've got the, the obvious mix of grapes there you know we've got um a chardonnay pinot noir and pinot menier um so yeah no no surprises what what some of our uh, end goals might be from uh from those uh f- from no from those vines i think we're going to try making some still wine as well um wow. just um it's you know mix it up a little bit from uh, you know there's there's a lot of british sparkling wines and i'm sure that they make it far better than we will ever be making it you know we've worked closely uh, over the years with with a number of them you know to single out a couple but you know um not exclusive to you know Hambledon we've worked closely with uh Night Timber we 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 used to have as a, our house um house sparkling and um, more recently um uh, vineyards like Simpsons down in, down in Kent I think the Pigot Bridge place has really um really brought a lot of uh, a lot of those um Kentish vineyards into the fold of us as well amazing yeah it's cool isn't it I, I love it I love the fact that I don't know. It's just kind of winding up. The fr- any opportunity to wind up the French is good fun, I think, isn't it? You know, we've oh, always yeah, been yeah, neighbours neighbors with them for uh, for so many generations. Uh, I, I think it's, it's exciting when we, we win some blind tasting uh, awards in uh, in sparkling wines, which is exciting. Um, well, yeah, obviously, everyone loves the story of the Judgment of Paris and everything. That's uh, that's probably the first time that they, they had two wine fingers stuck up at them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's superb. I just, uh, yeah, it, it's exciting. So... Um, what else then you know for the actual gardens themselves do, do you feel that they're always kind of evolving and that you're learning and that you've got this kind of growth trajectory i suppose that's a that's a pun isn't it a growth trajectory yeah. in a kitchen garden but you know what i mean um yeah i think um you know yeah you're constantly evolving your knowledge like um nobody knows everything and um you know anyone who anyone who does you know is, is just a liar really and i probably don't want to employ them <laughs> like um 
my son, he knows everything yeah. apparently. So he tells me he's only yeah. thirteen. But yeah. but I think it's it's all about you know passing passing knowledge down during the, through the generations. You know, I, I often say you know the the Victorians are the masters of kitchen gardening, and uh, sadly a lot of their a lot of their skills got lost during the during the wars. Obviously, you know they uh, those sort of um, landscape workers would have been some of the first people you know, in the trenches, I would have thought. Um, and, and also nowadays, you, you probably get a few, few of the old boys who, um, you know, are a little bit hesitant to, to pass on their knowledge to some of the younger generation because, you know, maybe they're a little bit worried about um, people taking their jobs or, or anything. Um, but, um, yeah, you, you always have to learn and it's really important to pass that knowledge to people. So, you know, I, I take my own kids down to our allotment, like you know, and with my son from the age of one and a half he's been pulling up carrots and you know eating them straight out of the soil you know a bit of bit of a garnish of manure on it yeah perfect um, that's yeah. where you get all your uh, you know the the i don't know the germs and stuff that we actually need isn't yeah. it that's a, well let's not even let's not even go there in a post-covid world everything's been sanitized within an inch of its life we'll yeah. all be we'll all be dying of random stuff um i wish i'd managed to get my kids as interested i did manage to get them to eat i grew some sweet corn in the garden that went pretty well i did manage to get them eating that but in general yeah they're not really showing a huge amount of interest in, in coming out in the garden and digging up a beetroot and a I, carrot I, yet i'll email you a few varieties that, that yeah? will inspire them uh, yeah, yeah okay that. something that tastes like chocolate brownie would be perfect I've got, so. well i've got a few things that you know taste taste like sweets when we when we had a wander around earlier um we uh, we stopped by, for instance, lemon verbena, yeah. which uh, that has a strong scent of the sherbet lemon sweet. You know, when you when you're a kid, yeah. uh, we've got. Uh, we didn't look at it, but I can show you afterwards a uh, chocolate peppermint we grow, okay. which again the scent to me is after eights. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, we've got a uh, a pineapple sage salvia plant that um, you know has a sort of pineapple chunk uh, scent to it. So. I've, I've often thought it'd be fun to do a sort of show garden uh, based on a on an old-fashioned sweet shop. Yeah, it'd be, like it'd be quite, sweet shop. Quite to, I think you'd have to blindfold concept. the kids to get them in there. But yeah, yeah just give them a little yeah. bit of each of those and they'd probably yeah, be able to name the sweets, which I suppose makes sense. There's a variety of sweet pepper that um, Sea Spring Seeds sell called Hammock. Um, right. And they they sort of um, you know lovingly call it a lunchbox pepper, but they grow these sort of uh, baby sweet peppers. So they're probably about three or four inches uh, in length. They're bright orange, so really really visual. Uh, they produce heavily throughout the year. I've got a plant outside that um, I think um, I mean generally you'll grow them in polytunnels to, to really produce. But I probably got about a kilo of them over the summer just just from a pot in the garden, wow. uh, which I thought was fairly impressive for, for that environment. You know, they're sweet and crunchy as anything, and they um, they've got very few seeds in them. So they're a lunchbox pepper because the kids love them and they fit in a lunchbox easily. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. Okay, well, I, I, I'm <laughs> I'm learning uh, by the second. Um, so I suppose ultimate ultimate Ollie dream. Your dad has a reputation for kind of um, you know, and, and openly admits that he never wants to run a massive business. So the pig inevitably will get to the sort of you know some sort of size where he'll go, yeah, don't really want to do that anymore. Do you have a post kind of pig? dream i suppose about you know what what's ollie doing in 10 20 years or whatever that might be is it do you think you'll stay in 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 farming and, and garden produce or um go back to your eco roots and get a uh, get a computer in a basement <laughs> no i think um uh i think i've got a few ideas for afterwards um uh, and I, you know, at the moment, you know, there's no no time scale on it really. Uh, you know, I've got the milestone of ten years of the company next year, which which is exciting. So uh, yeah, so no plans to to leave anytime soon. Um, but I think you know, having 
having a passion for um, you know fruit and vegetable production, but also a um, you know having grown up my whole life in hospitality. You know, I think you know somewhere in that bracket, I've got a few little little ideas that I could I could um, I could use. But I, I think with any business, uh, starting any small business, I think you have to have several kind of revenue streams. Um, so there will probably be a few um, a few little things that I, I do um, under one kind of umbrella. Excellent. That was a really uh, good answer without you getting shot by either your dad, wasn't it? For, <laughs> <laughs> for, for handing you notes on here, or, or, or giving away any uh, ridiculously amazing ideas that, that, that people can nick. Politics. Uh, well, look, or, ca- or catching myself out in the future when <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah, do when any you of listen them. back and go, <laughs> yeah, shit. Yeah. Or I execute them poorly. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah true. Uh, look, just thank you for sparing the time. You've been very generous in, in showing me round. And, and just, yeah, thanks for making those kitchen gardens awesome and inspiring me to grow some fundamentally very holy sort of, you know, yeah, lettuce leaves or, or kale leaves in my garden from, from walking around your uh, amazing gardens. And, and congratulations for what you kind of helped pull off because they really are phenomenal sort of inspirational spaces that really really good and they taste awesome as oh, well thanks like, you know it's the the credit should go to the teams in the individual kitchen gardens you know like i might i might um i might steer the ship but uh, you know they're, they're the guys who you know put in the, the real sort of elbow grease of, of making those gardens look great day to day yeah and 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 i'm just excited that you know people care enough and make the effort because because as we discussed before we started chatting you know these things don't always make the most financial sense you know they're not P&L driven they're driven by a, a love of great produce and learning and, and quirky kind of eccentricity and for me what genuine hospitality business you know is about if that's not a, a contradiction is this uh, yeah doing it because you love it and and just because it's fun and, and not everything we do has to be driven by sort of you know net profit basically so yeah thanks for sticking two fingers up to the big guys who buy everything and have it flown across the world yeah. and being cheap because you probably sometimes grow a vegetable that's probably cost 100 quid to grow and you could buy it for threepence. <laughs> maybe, yeah maybe not quite that extreme but yeah no uh, uh, I, I take your point definitely <laughs> like, yeah. awesome alright yeah. thank you and uh, yeah well, where should people go by the way if they want to follow your adventures are you on um, are you on any kind of social channel yourself or? Uh, yeah I um I'm probably probably most on Twitter. I'm, I'm an awful social media user, to be honest. But um, yeah, I'm at Ollie Hudson eighty five on Twitter. Uh, I do have an Instagram that is very rarely used. Uh, I'm more of a lurker, um, and uh, I believe that it might be Ollie Hudson eighty five as well. That one. Amazing. Um, uh, thank you very much for having me on Humans and Hospitality. It's yeah, been a amazing. pleasure. No worries at all. Thank you so much. Cheers. Go well. So there you have it. What an utter gentleman Ollie Hudson is. And I really hope you enjoyed our conversation. You probably learned a lot more about kitchen gardens and white butterflies and brassicas than you ever thought you wanted to know. Uh, but I hope you enjoyed the chat. And uh, please go over to the website humansofhospitality.co.uk where you will find the links through to Ollie's social media channels. And whilst you're there, why not sign up? There's a little form on the website. Uh, pop your email address and your name in there. I don't share it with anybody, but it does mean that every Monday I will ping you a little email and it just lets you know who this week's guest is, gives you a little bit of blurb and links you through to their social and their details so you can decide if you want to listen to that week's episode. Okay, thanks so much for joining me. I will be back next Monday with another conversation. Cheers.